Can you hear me okay? Do I need to be a little louder? No? Kathy says no. Louder? Louder? Okay. I can be louder. (laughs) So it seems that the majority of our younger folks have gone to uh, church retreat today. And because of that, I've decided to name this annual event that we have in our church today, Senior Sunday. (laughs) So, if you're not a senior, then one day you will be. Our scripture day is going to be coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bible, I'd really like you to turn there. Because we're going to be in there most of the morning. Chris said uh, I could take as long as I wanted, as long as it wasn't more than 20 minutes. So I said, Chris, when have you ever preached a 20-minute message? No, 90 minutes should do it, and we'll be out. No, I promise you it won't, it won't be like that. The title of uh, our message today is the uh, our ultimate conclusion. Our ultimate conclusion. I wanted to start by saying that every month I get a um, financial statements from my bookkeeper. In the business that I have, it's pretty much uh, required. It's important to know where your money is going. And uh, each month she sends me what's called a balance sheet. Now, a balance sheet basically tells you what, how much money you have and how much money you owe. And the other information that I get is called a profit and loss statement, or it's commonly known as a P&L. And when I get those informa- those, that information each month, uh, my, I ask two questions. And these questions, I mean, I don't sit there in my office and say, well, now my first question is I'm thinking mentally. But the first thing I do mentally is I want to know if my business made money or lost money. That's my first question. Uh, and so because of that, my eyes immediately go to the profit and loss statement, the P&L, and go to the very bottom. And it will tell me if it's in black, that's good. If it's in red, that's not a good thing. So that's what I want. I'm a, I'm a um, bottom, of the line, bottom of the line kind of a guy. I'm a get to the point kind of guy. I don't like to, I don't like to read books that take 14 pages to describe a chair in a room. I, I don't like that. I like to move right along. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. And what I want to do, because I get that financial statement, I'm looking for the bottom line or what I'm going to call the conclusion, the conclusion of all the work and all the, the, the hours of putting in uh, all the things that we need to do to make money in our business. So my eyes immediately go to the bottom line. My second question that I ask is, how did I get here? How did I either make money or lose money, and that would mean I would have to go back and look at the profit and loss statement because in this statement it says how much I paid my employees, how much I paid for rent, for utilities, on and on. And then that will give me the idea of how much money, if I made any. And today's message is a lot like this. Because in chapter 15, uh, Paul is going to come to a conclusion after preaching on this particular chapter. And this chapter is also known as the resurrection chapter. So Paul comes to a conclusion in chapter 15, verse 58. And we're going to start there. We're going to go back through the rest of the chapter rather quickly. But in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 58, the Bible says, 
therefore, and he uses the word therefore because he's coming to a conclusion of all the things that he's been telling these folks who are living in Corinth at the time. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What an amazing verse to lean on. What an amazing verse to cling to. If you don't have a life verse, I would recommend this one. It's excellent. You see, verses like this keep me anchored during the storms of life. And in my 68 years, I've had a couple of storms. Verses like this keep me centered on what's really and truly important in this life. Verses like this keep me encouraged to move forward, to not keep looking back, but to move forward. We can't do anything about the past. So keep looking forward. Also, verses like this rescue me from the desire to have a narcissistic, self-indulging life. It's not about me. A man by the name of A.W. A. Tozier wrote this, What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. Let me say that one more time. He said, what I believe about God is the most important thing about me. In other words, the most important thing about me is not me. It never has been and it never will be. Now that we know what Paul's bottom line or conclusion is, let's go back and see how he got there. Notice Paul ends this particular verse, verse 58, by using the word, knowing that your toil is not in vain. Well, he begins the chapter the same way. In 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast, the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what does in vain mean? But how does that, how does that compute in in our minds today? What does it mean to be doing something in vain? Well, I have three illustrations for you. Let's say, for example, that I'm a paint contractor. And I can say that because I used to be a long time ago and I had a little paint contracting uh, business and uh, uh, the name of my little business was Paint by, Paint by Number. Now, if you know me very well, because uh, everybody knows that knows me, knows that I'm as colorblind as you can get. Hence the name Paint by Number, you see. Ma'am, you tell me what color you want to paint this, give me the number, and I'll, I'll paint it for you. So let's say, for example, that you called me, put yourself in the you column there, Say that you call me or you call my answering service because I'm out painting houses, you see, so I have an answering service. And, and uh, my answering service uh, gets the, the, the uh, address and, and uh, she gets the paint number and she directs me to this house tomorrow that wants you to paint. And I'm actually a very fast painter and I have two other guys that help me and we specialize in painting houses really fast. And we can do a whole exterior of a house in one day. So we drive up and we, uh, we get out and we unload our power washer. We get on, we clean the building. It's 
clean. It's hot day, so it dries real fast, and we get the paint out. We've got the pressure for the for the paint sprayer, and, and we, we're just doing all this work. You know, we've got the drop cloths down. We're covering all the the bushes and everything, making sure that everything's covered and we don't get paint anywhere. And we're just we're finishing up the day. It's about five o'clock, and you drive home and you say, "Oh, they're getting their house painted too." I've painted the wrong house. I've spent the last eight hours sweating in 100-degree Texas weather with my two men that now I have to pay, and I'm praying, Lord, please let the people who have this house be liking the color that we painted. How sad would that be? That's doing something in vain, you see. When I was probably in the third grade, maybe the second, third, fourth, right in there, I was pretty young. Our uh, school was having a Christmas pageant. I don't know that they do that anymore, but I was in this play at school, and my part was rather lengthy. And for every, every day after school, we had to take 30 minutes and we rehearsed this. And we had dress rehearsals right there toward the end, and I was... I was gung-ho. I had all my lines memorized. I was ready to go. Woke up that morning, and my mom looked at me, and she said, Oh, you're not going anywhere. I said, What do you mean? We're having our, we're having our pageant today. I've got lines. I've got it. She said, Well, go look in the mirror. Mumps. Big mumps. I did all that work, memorized all that stuff for nothing. That's in vain. Have you ever said... I did all that work for nothing, or I did all of that for nothing. I have one final illustration. When my wife and I, our first home that we bought, I think it was 1976, we bought a little three-bedroom, one-bath home, about 900 square feet in Waco, Texas. And we didn't have any trees in our front yard, and I couldn't afford to go down and, and buy a tree, but to the side of our house, there was a pecan tree, and it was a real small pecan tree. It was only about five feet tall, and I said, hey, I can dig this up and replant it. Now, I'm a Texan, and I know about pecan trees, but I didn't know about their tap root. You see, pecan trees' roots don't, are not like live oaks where they go out. Pecan trees go straight down. So I'm there three hours. I'm digging. I've got my pickaxe. I'm digging with a shovel. And I'm thinking, what is wrong here? I can't seem to find the bottom. And someone came along and said, well, that's a pecan tree. And I said, yes, sir, it is. I want to put it in my, my front yard. And they said, well, you'll be, you'd be digging for a long time because that taproot's probably 10 feet down under. And, and I said, well, okay, I'll get it out. I got my car and I got, got a, got a chain. And I wrapped it around that thing, and I, I got it out of there all right. Of course, it was, it was ruined. I did all that work. I, I spent my whole Saturday getting that pecan tree out of our yard. I did that in vain. It was all done in vain. King Solomon, King Solomon came to a conclusion about vanity, didn't he? Look, if you would, to Ecclesiastes. I, that's still in the Old Testament. See, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you can find Psalms, which is about in the middle, go right, and you'll come to Ecclesiastes. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books of the Old Testament because this man had a lot of wisdom. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I want to read for you the kind of man that Solomon was. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. This is what Solomon says about his life. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest for growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homebound, homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. I asked the question, why would he say there's no profit under the sun? Well, Solomon concluded after that life of uh, narcissism, extreme narcissism, that having it all is vanity. Why? Why? Because he did it all for himself. Do you realize when you read that, I don't know if you, if my numbers are correctly, but to me, it looks like he, he uses the word I, me, myself, and my 33 times. He did it for, he didn't do this for the Lord. He did this for himself. Well, Paul gets a, 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 he gets word that the people in Corinth are being told that there is no resurrection. So as we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we look at Paul's, uh, uh, news about how to convince these Corinthian Christians that there is a resurrection, I think you will see the point that I want to make about vanity. And what Paul does, he gives four arguments or four evidences for resurrection, for the resurrection. Imagine, if you will, a courtroom setting, and Paul is uh, there and giving his defense and giving his evidences and his arguments for the resurrection. And he says, in this courtroom setting, he gives a, uh, a an opening statement. And in this opening statement, he says that Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried, and was resurrected, rose from the dead. From the dead. He was resurrected. And then he gives four arguments or four evidences of this. And he says in here that we know... He was resurrected because, and this is probably the most powerful of his arguments, he says that because he appeared to all the apostles and to all the 500 witnesses, over 500 people were seen, uh, uh, that Christ had been seen by over 500 people. This book was written probably in around 55 A.D. 
Well, Christ died in around 30 A.D., so this is only like 20, 25 years later. So a lot of these people that had seen him were witnesses to the fact that, yes, indeed, he was definitely resurrected. He also appeared to me as well, to Paul. His second argument, or evidence, was if Christ is not risen, if if what the Bible tells us to be true is not in fact true, then our preaching is in vain. It's in vain. That your faith is in vain. That your faith is worthless. Why are you even here today? He says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. How sad is that? To go through life believing something to find out at the end of life that it's not true. I want you just to consider for a moment what Paul had been through. He had been locked up in prison many times. It's kind of funny, but in a way it's not funny. But when he would go from town to town, people had never heard about Christ. He was in areas where modern-day Turkey and, and Greece, and he would go to these towns, and, and uh, a lot of people think that he would go to the, to the uh, uh, place where the Jews uh, worshipped on the Sabbath uh, day to the tabernacle and to where they worshipped. I don't think so. I think he went to the jails to find out what the accommodations were like because he spent so much time there. He was in prison a lot. He was locked up in prison many times. He was kicked and beaten too many times to count. Paul was uh, five times the Jews had whipped him with 39 lashes. I don't know if you've ever been whipped before, but I'm sure it's not a pleasant thing. But five times he'd been whipped. Three times he had been beaten with rods. You know, I don't like being hit with anything. And he got beaten with rods. He was actually stoned once. And many believe that he actually died and went to the third heaven. The Bible talks about that also. But he was stoned. You ever been hit in the head with a rock? Most kids have. Well, they used to be. Now kids are just, they get hit in the head with their phones. You know, but back in those days, we all threw rocks at each other. This is what Paul says about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to this, verses 26 through 29. He says of himself, I have been in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is, apart from all of that, there is the daily pressure of me, my concern for all the churches. So his argument, his argument here is, why would I do any of this if I was doing this in vain? You see, that's his argument. I'm doing all this because of Christ, not because I want to. I'm sure he'd much rather be at home, you know, watching A&M beat Tennessee. I mean, I'm sure he would. I mean, if it was, if this was it. So his argument, his second argument is, why would I do any of this if I was doing it in vain? Well, because he's not doing it in vain. He believes this. He actually saw Christ. He physically saw his resurrected body. Okay. Here's his third argument. Christ, uh, 
Uh, his, his, uh, his argument, his evidence, Christ is described in the Bible as first fruits. Now, I don't know uh, if all of you, I mean, I'm certainly not a farmer, but I know a little bit about farming. And I can tell you that if you have a couple hundred acres and you have peach trees on that acreage, you go out towards the end of harvest season, or t- toward the beginning, I should say, of harvest season, you walk through your orchard, and you're looking at the peaches, and you're thinking, yeah, they're not quite ready, and come out the next day, still not ready, but it's getting close, and you walk out the next day, and you see one that looks absolutely perfect. So you pull it out of the tree. You do know that they don't all ripen at the same time, right? We all know that. I mean, it's not like, okay, we've got to get out there today because they're all ripe. It happens over a period of time. Well, the very day that he sees the first peach that looks delicious, he pulls it out of the tree and he looks at it, he feels it, he smells it, and he takes the ultimate test. He takes a big bite and the juice just runs all over his long beard. And he's just like, yes, this is the first fruits. In other words, what he's saying is all the fruit that's in this Orchard is going to be just like this one day. This is the first one. And that's what the Bible describes Jesus as. He's the first fruit, the first among many, which means that we're the many and we're going to be just like him. We're going to be resurrected in a resurrected body. Not this body. Are you kidding me? I want a new body. How about you, Dyke? Yes, sir. Amen. This is an example of how others will follow him because he's the first fruits. Now, he says, uh, gives the final argument in his, uh, his defense of the uh, pro- proving that uh, the uh, resurrection actually happened. And he says, he says this in this particular chapter. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, that makes perfect sense. If you believe this is all there is, you should live any way you want to. If you took, if you went to downtown San Antonio and you took 100 people and you asked them what happens when you die, many would probably say, we simply cease to exist. Now, I just happen to have a visual aid this morning. I want to I want to illustrate this with a light and a candle. People who believe that when we die we simply cease to exist is known as the candle theory. So here we are, we've lived here for x amount of years. We've lived a normal life, we've raised our children, we've provided for their education. We've been good husbands, good fathers. We've good sons to our parents, whatever. And one day, many people, and many people believe this, that one day when they die, that this light, which represents our life, this is what happens. It's over with. There's nothing else. It's dark. There's no consciousness. And that's all there is to it. Now, many people believe that. Well, I'm not buying that. You mean to tell me no matter what we do in this life, no matter how we live in this life, after it's all over, there's no accountability for anyone, for anything? No matter how bad you were or good you were, it's all the same? It doesn't matter? You can live any way you want? There's no rewards? There's no consequences? 
Pick in your mind the worst scoundrel that you can think of. Many people use Hitler or Stalin or some bad person. That person lives, kills millions of people, millions of people. And then compare that to someone else who you think is the most godly person in the world. And they both die, and that's it. Are you kidding me? That can't be real. And that's Paul's defense. He's saying this. Paul didn't believe that, and I don't either. I believe that when we die, that we go before a holy God, that we stand before him, and we give an account for our lives. Which brings us back to verse 58. Brings who we are as Christians to our ultimate conclusion. My conclusion after reading this, that Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And that's why he says, therefore, because of that, and because I don't believe in living a vain life for God, therefore, he says, uh, beloved brethren. Now he's, he's talking about who he's talking to actually. He's talking to his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking to people that name the name of Christ. Christians. And he's calling them beloved brethren. There's a close relationship here. These, this just isn't anybody he's talking to. This is the family of God. Now, these people have been exposed to extreme hardships. Many pro- probably have lost their jobs because of their faith. They probably don't laugh a lot, but they probably have a lot of people laughing at them, making fun of them because they're Christians, because they're following Christ. The prevailing attitude in that particular day and time was that's exactly what happened. When you die, it's all over with. So we're going to live any way we want to live. We're, there's not going to be any accountability. But these people have been exposed to many, many hardships because of their faith. Paul is now concluding, he's coming to a conclusion about his arguments about the resurrection. And he says, because all of this is true, because everything that we read and know about Christ is true, do this. Do this. He says to be steadfast, immovable, Folks, this is not rocket science. You don't have to say, well, I just don't understand the Bible. What's so hard about that to understand? This is not brain surgery here. He's saying for us to be steadfast in our faith, not to waver, to be, to not, to be immovable, to be firmly established, to be grounded, to not waver, uh, to not change our position with every wind of doctrine that comes along. Well, I just don't know if I believe that anymore. Well, if you don't believe the resurrection, that's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what he says that we're supposed to do. Always abounding in our own work. No, he says in the work of the Lord. That's what's not vain. You see, doing things for us is As Solomon would say, it's all vanity. I get to drive a new car every day. I live in a half million dollar home. I take expensive vacations. It's all vanity. Do you see that? When it comes to the end of your life, there's going to be a reckoning, a a giving of an account of our life. We're going to be resurrected and face the Lord. Don't give up. Keep working for the Lord. Why? 
Because if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's why we do it. Because the things that we do for the Lord are not being done in vain. They're for a purpose. Every kind word or deed done in the name of the Lord, every prayer, every moment reading your Bible, every person you share Christ with, every penny and every minute you give serving God, everything done for the Lord will not be done in vain. You know, we have a date stamped on the bottom of our feet. You know that, right? We can't see that date, but God can. There's a day and time for all of us to die. All of us. There's no, we, have no, we have no guarantee that we'll get out of the parking lot today. We may come out there and there might be a crazy person driving 80 miles an hour and an 18-wheeler just run over us and flatten us. We, we don't have any guarantee, do we? There is none. That's why this is so important. One day we will stand before God and we will give an account for our lives. And I don't want a lot of things to get burned up because I did it for myself or I did it in the flesh. And we do a lot of things. I do a lot of things in the flesh, but not for God. And I want to, I want to move more in that direction. I don't want to be like Solomon. Yes, it's nice to have nice clothes and nice cars and nice homes and, and all the latest electronic stuff and all that wonderful stuff, but you realize that's all going to get burned up. It doesn't mean anything. It's not eternal. It's temporal. It's temporary. We're only here for a very short time. And so that's why it's so important for us to believe and know that we have a relationship with Christ in our hearts. Know that we're Christians. Know that the gospel is the good news that because Christ has died for us, we can live in heaven and be with him for eternity, not 50 or 80 or 100 years, but forever. That's amazing. That You know, if I was a shouting person, I would probably shout. Can I at least get an amen here? All right, all right. Thank you, thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, once again, we come to you thanking you for the word of God. Thank you for the truth that it gives us. The important thing in life is not to live for ourselves, not to live for anything but you. And when we put you first in our lives, we realize that there will be a reward someday. There will be an opportunity to receive the blessings that you have in store for us. So I pray today that we would all be thinking about this, we'd be mindful of this, and that our lives would reflect the love of Christ wherever we go. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.